You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right, we are excited this morning to be launching a new study on the life of David. And before we get going, we've got some resources to point out. We actually printed them out for you today. So on your seat when you came in, you had a little packet there. I just want to highlight some things. We printed them out to draw your attention to them. Each of these are always available on our website, on our series page. But I wanted you to just take special note that for this series, we'll have a scripture guide for you um, to give you a little bit more information about the passage that we're studying on Sunday. So if you want to dive in a bit more on your own or if you want to know some of our background work and some of the resources that we used. So that's there. That's always online. But we'll print that out for this series. Um, I think we'll print that out every week for you, that scripture guide. Also on your seat, you have our daily uh, Bible reading plan. If you are not already studying something on your own, we just invite you to do the Bible reading plan with us. We also get together on Wednesday mornings here right next door to study the passage, the Wednesday's passage of Scripture together. So you're invited to that at 7 a.m. here right on campus. We'll give you breakfast and coffee, and um, we'll study that passage together. And then the rest of the week we'll be also studying what's on that daily reading plan. And then you'll notice we also printed out our life group guide for the week. That is also always available online for you to look at, download, uh, bring with you to group time. But that's what we'll be doing in group time this week. Our aim is not just to hear the Bible and learn things about the Bible. We want to begin to be transformed by God's Word. We want to walk in obedience. We don't simply want to be hearers of the Word. We want to be doers as well, to use the language of the book of James. And so Life Group is how we practically apply the things that we're studying and talking about on Sundays and is a central uh, way that we go about being the church. And that's what we anchor our time around on those Life Group guides. And then lastly... We have uh, other resources that we're using and highlighting for this series, and so on the series page, you'll find some other book recommendations. This is all on our website at midtowndowntown.com. Our aim is to resource you as best as we can. So I'm trying to do my part to help you grow. At some point, your growth is your responsibility, but we want to do the best that we can to put in front of you things that we think could help you and encourage you and challenge you and help you learn, help you repent, help you obey. So all of that is there for you. Hope you'll take advantage of that um, and, and step forward as we get into this series on the life of David. So why don't you turn 1 Samuel Chapter 16, that's where the Bible introduces us to the person of David. 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's some on the ends of the rows. They're in those baskets underneath seats, and someone would be glad to pass one down to you. And if you need to know where 1 Samuel is, there's a table of contents at the very beginning of that Bible. So you can look at that and get your page number. And I'll give you a little bit of time to get over to 1 Samuel chapter 16. So uh, David, if you're, if you're unfamiliar, is a very celebrated person in the library of Scripture. In fact, there are over 60 chapters in the Bible that refer to David. So just as one example, Abraham is only mentioned in 14 chapters. David gets 60 different chapters of mention. There was one uh, scholar who says we have more biographical content about David than we do any other ancient figure, not just in the Bible, 
anywhere, any ancient figure in any writings. We actually have more biographical content about David than anyone from antiquity. Two times in Scripture, David gets referred to as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. He will go on as we pick up his story. He's going to become a highly accomplished leader of Israel's army. Israel at the time is a very small group of folks, and somehow they end up becoming quite powerful in the world. And humanly speaking, that reality is based in large part on David. David also writes some of the most cherished poetry and songs that we have from all of ancient civilization, which right there makes him a little bit of a category breaker for us. How many grizzled army vets do you know who are also highly skilled singer-songwriters that are able to write poetry that deeply expresses their thoughts and feelings? This is David. And yet, in spite of all these things that are wonderful about him and all the ways that God uses him, we're going to find that David has a very serious dark side. He is incredibly flawed. There is a mixture of character and integrity and talent, but a sin nature, just like everyone else who's ever lived. There's a mixture of godliness and brokenness, and the Bible hides none of that. It's one of the things that affirms to me the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of Scripture. If you're making up a story about one of your nation's heroes, and you were just inventing this person, you would write them as a, a monolithic figure who always does the right thing, who's an example that we can always look up to, and the Bible does not do that at all. It's incredibly honest about David's flaws and failures and the ramifications and consequences of his sins. So we see David described as this person who does love God and who does amazing things, but who also does some pretty terrible things. So ultimately, David's life is about God and God's ability to draw people into his plan. It's about the kinds of people that God uses and how he uses them, how he deals with people through their victories and their failures. And what we'll see with David is that when he's humble and faithful and simply does what God asks of him, things go really well for him and for everybody around him. When he strikes out on his own, there begins to be some serious breakdown. So in other words, this is, and this is really important, we're not studying David because David is a hero. People tend to, to assume that all the characters in the Bible, especially the more famous Old Testament characters, they're heroes. There's our, there are examples, and we should follow them. And if you think that, then you've not actually read much of the Bible. Because there are some atrocious people in the Old Testament who God uses and God works through, who God blesses and God loves. It's a story mostly about how God is the hero. God is always the hero of God's story. And this is a big part of the reason why we ultimately need a Messiah, a, a true king, a savior named Jesus who is sinless and comes to do what David actually could not, which is establish God's good reign and rule on the earth. So David's not the hero, and we'll see that fairly quickly. Plenty we can learn from him, but there's plenty we can learn not to do from him as well. So David uh, is introduced in 1 Samuel. We'll look at 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13 today. And for the most part, I just want to try to get us into the historical context, explain what's going on. We'll draw out a few things about God that we can learn. I think that's one of the good things about doing something. So uh, sometimes we do sermon series and we pick things that are immediately relevant to our lives, things that we're all asking, we're all wondering, 
things that are uh, immediately helpful, and we discern instantly, this is relevant to me right now. Sometimes it's good for us to pick things that maybe we're not asking questions about. I assume no one came in the room this morning thinking, I really am curious about David from Scripture, and that's my main sense of need in my life, is to learn more about David. But I think there's something profoundly good to take a break from things that are immediately relevant to our life, look at who God is and what he's done in other people's lives and draw out those principles. It takes us a little more work to get into our lives, and we'll get there even today. But mostly what I want to do is look at David and then through that, who God is and what we actually learn about God from the life and story of David. So let's get David introduced. Here we go. First, first Samuel chapter 16. Let me read a verse here and then we'll set up some of the context historically. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? So let me set the stage here. This is around uh, 1000 BC. And right before the events of, of First and Second Samuel, which is actually just technically it's one book, but in our English versions it gets broken up into two. Right before what we just read, what we read here in 1 Samuel, Israel is a small collection of 12 tribes. They're led by leaders called judges who would periodically deliver the people from outside threats. And Samuel is a prophet and the last one of these judges. And the people come to Samuel and they ask to move from this judge-style government to a monarchy like all the nations around them. And 1 and 2 Samuel cover God's response to that request for a king and God's establishment of a unified Israelite kingdom. And we're picking up the story here towards the downfall of the first appointed king, a guy named Saul. So God first told Samuel to anoint Saul as king. And Saul was the type of guy that everybody would have wanted to be the king. He's a really obvious choice. It says he's very tall. It actually, the Bible actually says he stood head and shoulders above everyone around him. He's charismatic, he's good looking, he's a great warrior, he's a number one draft pick kind of guy. And so nobody's surprised by the selection of Saul. In fact, everybody loves it. They're very excited. It seems like we got a really good guy. He's a strong leader. This is gonna be our dude. And Saul starts out fairly well. He wins some battles, he delivers the people, but he turned out to be a king like most other kings. The power corrupted his heart. And Saul becomes proud and self-willed He uses his position of power to serve himself rather than the people he was called to lead. He begins to bend the laws of God whenever it served him. Ultimately, we find that Saul has the tools, but he doesn't have the heart. He's got the talent, but not the character. And so the Bible says God rejects him as king and tells Samuel to go look for a new king. And that's where we're picking it up. Verse, uh, finish up verse one. So God says to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for for me him whom I declare to you. So it's Not a great idea to get caught going behind the king's back to declare someone else the rightful king. That sort of thing would get you killed pretty quickly. So they need some sort of cover to provide here so that Samuel doesn't just get killed by Saul as soon as Saul finds out. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and they said, 
do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Eliab is Jesse's firstborn son. And generally speaking, the oldest son is looked at as the one with the most power, the most prestige of all the sons. And apparently Eliab looked kingly. He was tall and, and good-looking, commanding presence. The, he's the Dwayne the Rock Johnson of ancient Israel, if you will. Verse 7, this is so important for everything about David. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. All right, so you got to know, ancient kings were almost always in power because of their physical stature and their fighting abilities. If you could beat up everybody in the room, then you deserve to be the one in charge. It was fairly black and white. Uh, actually, this is, I just found this out. You know William Wallace from the movie Braveheart? He was actually a real guy from the 1300s. He was a, a leader of the Scots against the English. And they say that the real William Wallace was around six and a half feet tall. And he became the leader because he had this massive, long broadsword. And he could just wipe down anybody that came at him because he was so big and so physically imposing. And that this was why he ended up being the leader there. This, the strength and towering stature of a man in those days was something that really made it easier for him to get respect. And so Samuel here shows up. God says it's going to be a son of Jesse who I'm, I'm, I'm going to appoint as king. He looks at Eliab. He's very big. And Samuel thinks, I mean, no way. This has got to be God's guy, right? Like, no way God's going to swipe left on him. He's so tall. This has got to be the guy for sure. But God says, that's not actually what I'm looking for. He says, I'm looking for a certain posture of heart. Lord looks at the heart. Now, when the Bible uses the term heart, that's not just about your feelings. That's not just about your emotions. That's not just about your desires or what you want. So for us, if we say, you know, I got to go to work, but my heart is not in it. What we mean is, I don't want to. That's all that we mean. The Bible, uh, when it uses the term heart, cannot be reduced to simply feelings or emotions or even desires, although it is a part of that. It would be reductionistic to say it's only that, though. It's not simply those things. In the Bible, the heart is your whole operating system. It's your entire moral and spiritual self. It's your motives. It's why you do what you do. It is your emotions, but it's also your will and your reason. Your heart, biblically speaking, is what drives you. It's your operating system. And says, this is what God looks at. Here's a great little cross-reference about David. It's from Acts chapter 13. Paul is speaking here, but catch what it says about David and this issue of heart and will. Paul says, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. That's what it means to be a man after God's heart. God's not looking for a sinless person. He's looking for a submissive person. 
And this will be the pattern for David. That when he simply does what God tells him to do, he's blessed, the entire nation is blessed. When he strikes out on his own, we get all sorts of pain and all sorts of problem. Uh, people tend to go crazy over looks and talent. They did it then, we do it now. But what God wants is someone who will just do what he says to do. So Eliab steps forward. Samuel assumed that's got to be the guy. He's so tall. God says, not him. I'm not looking for externals. I need someone with the right heart posture. Verse 8. So then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Is this it? You got anybody else? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. So notice that in Jesse's mind, there's no scenario where David is the possible option. Doesn't even bring him along with the rest of the family. There's no chance in Jesse's mind that David is what God is looking for. And he says he's the, he's the youngest. Uh, it's a hard word to translate. It's not just about age. In the Hebrew, it's actually more of a pejorative. It, uh, it's almost like the word runt. So it's not simply in age, he is the youngest. It's more than that, and it's more condescending than that. It's that he's the littlest, and he's the most inconsequential. So what Jesse's actually saying is, I mean, yeah, I got David, but he doesn't matter. That's actually how this would be read. And it says he's keeping the sheep, which is the lowest job in Israel. I know the Christmas story makes us romanticize shepherds, but that was not an admirable trade. This was the lowest job in Israel. So this is a nobody doing the worst job that's out there. Jesse doesn't even think he should bring him because there's no chance God would have this guy be the future king. And Samuel said to Jesse, well, send him and get him, and we will not sit down until he comes here. And so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. So that word ruddy, there's a little debate on what it means. It could either mean he's redheaded and freckled. Uh, it could mean that he's dirty and disheveled. He smells like the pasture. Not exactly sure what it means. Um, it says he has pretty eyes. <laughs> That's, so these are, not, these are actually not, it reads a little bit like a compliment to us in the English. It, it wouldn't have read that way in the Hebrew. Uh, it, when it says all this, he's saying he doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look like a warrior. This is not a fighter. He looks like a little kid with a baby face. That's what it's saying. This is not The Rock. This is Justin Bieber. This is not, this is not the warrior that we're after here to lead our, king, lead our kingdom into battles. And to be most accurate, some of this is just because David is that young. He actually grows up and does become a very competent soldier. But the issue more so right now is at this point, he's young and he's little and nobody knows how he's going to turn out physically. It's a total wild card. It just does not look like what you'd be after for a king. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. We find out that David, after this, goes back to the pasture. He goes back to watching sheep. We know that because later in verse 19, he gets called into the king's service. 
And it actually says that he was just back with the sheep. This is verse 19. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. So we don't know how long David remains there tending sheep after he's anointed. Most commentators say it was probably a few years. So that's our biblical introduction to one of the most important figures in all the Bible. So historical narrative in Scripture has its own set of rules, so to speak. It's not just the facts, but it's history that intends to make a point. And that's, you may not know this, that's true of every historical account of anything you've ever read. Everything is biased. It's all choosing what to include and what not to include to communicate a point. That's how history is. Hate to spoil anybody's day. Same in Scripture. There are details that are included on purpose, and there are things that are left out. You can't communicate everything when you try to tell about what happened. You're going to necessarily leave out things. And so the writers of of Samuel here want to tell us what's true about God and how God works and what's true about David. So we need to pay attention to what's included and what's left out. And you're supposed to read this story, this historical narrative introduction to David. You're supposed to read it and think, This sounds a little low-key for an introduction to the greatest king in Israel's history. This sure is not what I would have anticipated. You're supposed to find it strange and unimpressive. His own father doesn't even think highly enough of him to have him considered as a potential future king. Then he gets anointed in this kind of secret ceremony, and he just goes back to the pasture to watch sheep. It's not at all what you would anticipate or expect. This is not who you would expect for a king, and this is not how we would expect to get a king. So for the rest of our time, I'd love to just kind of break those two ideas down a little bit. First, number one, one of the main takeaways is that God uses unlikely people. God uses unlikely people. If you look back at verse 7, The Lord says to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, speaking of Eliab. For the Lord sees not as man sees, because man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David is not who you think of when you think of a king. This is not a normal origin story for an ancient king. Uh, Hebrew literary scholar Robert Alter says this about this incident, this introduction to David. Let me read a little quote from him. He says, David is kind of a male Cinderella, left to his domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. He's been excluded from consideration, but the tending of his flocks to which he had been relegated will turn out to give him exactly what he needs, both in the Goliath battle and later to lead his people. This David story is also a heightened and stylized playing out of the theme of the reversal of primogeniture that dominates Genesis. Instead of an elder brother, or even a younger of the seven sons, which is the Hebrew number for completion, David is the eighth child and therefore is not even there at all. So in ancient times, the world always gave the oldest son all of the power, the primogeniture. And the beautiful women got all the most powerful men. That's just how it worked. But every place in the Bible where God works, he works in a way that reverses the world's values. 
This is a mega theme, especially in the Old Testament. God goes with the younger son. So it's Abel, not Cain. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. It's Moses, not Aaron. Or God goes with the unwanted woman, the old woman or the barren woman. So it's Sarah, not Hagar. It's Leah, not Rachel. It's Hannah. It's Tamar. God always works with the girl that nobody wants and the son who is forgotten because God loves to use unlikely people. We get an even greater insight into the reality that God loves to use unlikely people with the coming of Jesus. So Jesus comes. He's in the same family tree as David. He's just further down it. And Jesus is born in the middle of a nowhere town. He's raised in Nazareth, which was such a nothing place that when Jesus later meets Nathaniel, Nathaniel's first reaction to meeting Jesus is, can anything good come from Nazareth? In other words, this guy cannot be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He's not the right kind of person. Jesus was born to an unwed mother, which in a religious society would have been incredibly shameful. He's even called an illegitimate child later in his life by the religious leaders. So surely this can't be God's promised savior of the world. Jesus was a carpenter. He had a regular blue-collar job. He wasn't a rising ruler. He wasn't even a true rabbi in their system. He's not on any next up who's who watch list. He's not on the free times coolest people under 35 in Columbia. He's not making the list. And even as Jesus hangs on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, some soldiers mock him for claiming to be the king. He's just not the kind of person you'd have in mind if you're looking for a promised Messiah. And over and over and over again, the Bible is trying to show us that God doesn't think the way that you and I think. He just doesn't have the same categories that we have. He's always been about showing off how much wiser and how much more powerful he is. And so in the New Testament, Paul talks about this idea. It's from 1 Corinthians, which we studied a year ago. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So why did God pick David? Not because he was strong or tall or wise or rich or powerful, because David wasn't any of those things, at least not yet. God chose David to show off how wise and powerful he was. And David becomes those things, but not in his own strength, it's in God's strength. In verse 13 of 1 Samuel 16, that's an important point of emphasis. It says, when Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David became extraordinary, not because there was anything extraordinary about him, but because God's spirit was on him. God loves to pick and use unlikely people. So if there was a quiz on like the types of people that God likes to use, most likely to be used of God. You might not score very high, but the beautiful news of the story of David is that if you care about more how you look on the inside than you do on the outside, and if you're willing to do whatever God tells you to do, then you're exactly the kind of person that God loves to use. I want to ask you a very basic question, but I actually want you to think about it. Do you expect... God to use you? 
don't let that hit you as a cliche. Don't, don't be dismissive because that's a simple question. I really want you to think about it. Do you genuinely, truly expect God to use you to bless other people, to help other people, to make a difference in the world? Do you expect God to use you in your spouse's life? Or are you more like surprised when it happens? Like your spouse comes up later and it's like, hey, you know, when you said that the other day, that really made me think and I was praying about it and that was really helpful to me. And you're like, really? <laughs> Do you expect God to use you in your life group? Is that a driving reason why you participate in your life group? Sometimes people will say to me out of concern, hey, listen, I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of my life group. You need to change your expectation. Your goal should not be to get something out of it. Your goal should be to give something to it. And if everyone shows up with the goal for God to use them and give something to it, then the byproduct is we're going to all get something out of it. Do you expect God to use you in your roommates' lives, or are you just trying to lot, lot, not let them bother you too much? I think about this a lot with my kids. It, a lot of my thoughts end up going towards how I'm not really the dad that my kids need. Like, sometimes they need a dad who's more strict. Sometimes they need a dad who's more patient. They always need a dad who's smarter. They always need a dad who has his stuff together, who's more steady. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that you're not really the parent that your children need. And there's an element of truth to that, that you don't actually have everything that your kid needs from you. But it is also true that if we are eager for God to use us in their lives and we're willing to do whatever he asks of us in pursuit of that, then we are exactly the parents that our kids need. And that's why God gave them to us, which is great news because it means he can use us. God uses unlikely people. Number two, God uses unlikely processes. Unlikely processes. This is our introduction to the greatest king in the nation of Israel's history. There's no celebration. There's no national ceremony. Actually, David didn't even there. He's in the pasture while the ceremony's taking place. Then he gets called up. He's told he's going to be king, and he's just sent right back to the pasture. He doesn't immediately go to the palace for a ceremony. He doesn't enter into some sort of official king training program. He just goes back to doing what he was doing before, back to the pasture alone watching sheep. Watching sheep in the pasture is not the normal king development process, but, and this is really important, but God uses the pasture to prepare the king. So the next chapter in the life of David is the story of Goliath. Do you remember, those of you who are familiar with the story of David and Goliath, do you remember what gives David the courage and confidence to go fight Goliath? All the Israelite armies terrified of him including Saul, who's supposed to be their big, you know, warrior king. Check out why David has the courage and confidence to go. It's from 1 Samuel 17. Let me read it. But David said to Saul, Goliath is there taunting everybody. 
Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So what gives David the courage and confidence to go fight Goliath? When everybody is terrified, little runt David steps up to the plate. It's because of his time in the pasture. David's faith was cultivated in the field. The process was his preparation. That's alliteration. It immediately makes me a better preacher. You're welcome. I learned that in a class. I like to picture David out in the field, in the pasture, by himself, watching the sheep. This guy came from Jerusalem. He said, I was going to be king, said David was going to be king. And now he's back in the field watching sheep for a couple of years, bored to tears, nothing to do but practice his slingshot up against a tree, thinking, there is no way that God's going to use this. When he's finally so tired of practicing this slingshot, he pulls out his harp and works on his songwriting skills, thinking, what a waste of my time. God, there's no way you know what you're doing right now. And we can smile because we know about Goliath and we know about the book of Psalms, but David doesn't. He doesn't know that yet. And the point is, the field, the pasture was right where God wanted him. Because David was learning how to follow and trust God in obscurity. God knew there were ways that David needed to grow, character that needed developing, skills that needed to be cultivated. David was growing in courage and in faith because some things must be learned in the background and they cannot be learned on the stage. Some things you've got to get expertise on in practice. You cannot work them out in the game. And no one, no one would have guessed that this would be the method by which God would accomplish his purposes. It's too weird. It's too unlikely. It doesn't make sense to us. But God loves to accomplish his purposes through unlikely processes. And once again, Jesus is our best example. The whole life of Jesus is not what anybody thought it should have been. It doesn't seem like it should be God's solution to fix what's wrong with the world. I even remember being younger and in church, like as a kid, and people would explain the story, and I'm just sitting there thinking, what are you talking about? You're saying God's plan was for a virgin to have a baby, and you really think that's how it worked? You're aware of where babies come from, and you think a virgin had a baby? So God became a baby. Even though he, had, he was already in existence, he became a baby. He was born. God was born, though he was already alive. And then he grew up. And you're telling, me, you're telling me God was on the earth for 33 years and he wanted to spend 30 of them just doing a job? And God died. God let the people that he created kill him. And then he came back from the dead. And even then he doesn't just fix everything. Then he says, I've begun the process of fixing everything. And then he just floats up to heaven, and as he's floating through the clouds, he says, go tell everyone, this is the plan. 
This is God's solution to fix all that sin has broken and all that's gone wrong on the earth. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus is not what anyone would have expected. It's not what we'd expect God to be like. It's not how we would expect God to work. How could death bring life? How could his poverty bring us wealth? How could restraint yield freedom? How could losing my life allow me to find it? But the reality is that God would use Jesus' life of suffering and the cross to save the world. He saves sinners in the most unlikely way through a cross and through grace by faith. Grace is not what people think of when they try to imagine how they should make themselves right with God. You know, every religion that people have invented always involves works. You earn your way to God. You obey this. You do that. You go here. And if you can clean yourself up enough, you will put yourself in right position with God. And then here comes God revealing himself, and he says, you have no way of putting yourself in right position with me but I will freely save you by grace because of the work that my son has done. Kings do not normally come from pastures. Saviors do not normally come from crosses, but God loves to use unlikely processes. You need to be very careful not to judge God based on your circumstances. You need to be very careful careful about judging God based on your circumstances because the problem is you do not always know what God is doing. But he does. And for many of us, there are things that we are frustrated about simply because we don't understand what God's doing. So the question becomes, do you believe that God sees you right now where you are? Do you believe that he sees you? Some of you might have some incredibly undesirable circumstances. Some of you feel like you are in the pasture. You're like, I'm, I am David right now in the pasture. I'm, out, I'm nowhere doing nothing. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. Do you believe that God has you there for a reason? Do you believe that he knows what he's doing. Maybe you're at a place in your life where you really think more should be happening than actually is, where you do not see God's hand or see God's purposes. But the reality is that God is at work in every bit of it, shaping you and working through you, cultivating your faith and your character, working to turn you into a man or woman after his own heart. And just in case anybody is going to misinterpret to be clear, I am not saying that God's working right now because something amazing is coming your way. You're not going to become the king of Israel. Don't over-identify with David. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is your life being used for God's purposes, whatever shape that might take. I'm talking about you becoming more like Jesus so that your very life itself is a ministry, that your circumstances become less relevant to your power, because your life is a ministry, because you have more faith and more humility and more love and more grace and more spirit, because the process is a part of the preparation. And I want you to understand that even your undesirable circumstances, whatever they are, they're not in the way of the goal 
of God's purposes in your life. They're a central part to it. You might not see what God's doing, but he does. So the call is to learn to be faithful where you are. Just because the process doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean that God doesn't know what he's doing. Because the God who makes kings from unlikely people through unlikely processes will be faithful to unlikely us. That's our introduction to David. It's a story about David. It's as much of that a story about God. As we look to study David over the coming weeks, we'll take some different looks at people that God brings into his life, things that we can learn about friendship and about enemies and about temptation and all sorts of practically relevant things. But the theme through all of it is that David's not actually the hero. God is. So let me pray and we'll transition and have some time to think through this stuff, to repent, um, to pray, maybe to journal. We'll sing. We'll take communion as we remember the body and blood of Jesus broken and spilled. For us, the most unlikely process that anyone could come up with, and it's because nobody came up with it. It's what God revealed to us. Let me pray and we'll have a time to respond. God, thank you for uh, our time this morning to be gathered as your people. Um, Thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for the life of David. Mostly, though, thank you for who you are, and thank you for what we learn about your character through the story of David. So, God, would you just help us now as we transition and we begin uh, to interact with you? Lord, help us to think about how all this fits with our lives. Help us to to reflect, to repent. Um, God, help us to avoid judging you based on circumstances in our life. God, would you fill us with faith to trust that you do know what you're doing when we don't know what you're doing. God, would you continue to use us, us unlikely people, would you use us more and more to bring blessing and healing and wholeness to the folks around us and to our city? Let me ask this in Jesus' name, amen.